Welcome to the Social Lights podcast with Kate Vandervoort, where I interview changemakers and innovators on how they connect with their tribe on social media. Brought to you by Social Mediology. Welcome everyone to season three, episode five of the Social Lights podcast. I am here today with Dr. Evan Shellshear, the head of analytics at Biari, a world leading mathematical and predictive modeling company and an expert in artificial intelligence with a PhD in game theory from the Nobel Prize winning University of Bielefeld in Germany. He has many years of international experience in the development and design of AI tools for a variety of industries, having worked with Australia's top companies on all aspects of advanced analytical solutions. He is also the author of a number of books, including the best-selling book on Amazon, Innovation Tools. So welcome, Evan. Thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure to be on today. I am hoping I can keep up with this conversation with all of those amazing <laughs> accolades that you have. I, I think you've been too nice to me there. You focused <laughs> on all the good things and missed the, missed the other things that I try and sweep under the rug. <laughs> uh, well, let's explore some of those now then. <laughs> So listen, Evan, tell me, what is it that lights you up? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Look, the things that really get me out of bed is having an impact and seeing the work you do changing something. So uh, within the consulting industry and a lot of the work we do, we do do a lot of analysis and you do do a lot of reporting and you provide people with insights and information and sometimes they use it, sometimes they don't. But the day that you build a tool and you build something that you see a whole organization using and you see people doing things better, leading to greater efficiencies and a better way of working, that's really what gets me excited and, and gets me out of bed each day. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit more about Biari and the work that you do and how that came about. So Biari is, is a fascinating company from the perspective of where we are right now. So right now, we've, we've just been through one of the worst crises globally that, that we've seen in the last 100 years. It's been horrific. And the actual origins of BRE began in another crisis. And that crisis was the financial crisis 10 years ago. So in 2009, the founders of BRE decided it was time to start an organization to make the world operate more efficiently. They realized that just digging more out of the ground or cutting down more trees or, or producing more from the same resources that we're getting from farms at some point in time won't suffice anymore. We need to actually do things better. We need to use our resources more efficiently. We need to operate better. And a great example of that was one of the first companies that ever came and engaged with us, a large organization called Asa uh, that uh, sells the Asahi brands that also is behind Schweppes, Schweppes drinks that you may know. And they basically had this massive Excel sheet that they used to run their fleet of delivery cars on across Melbourne. Now, what had happened is this Excel sheet had grown organically over a number of years, and it had reached the point where it had dozens and dozens and dozens of tabs across the bottom where just opening the Excel sheet took you 10 minutes, let alone trying to do something with it. And so when they got to the point that they had thousands of deliveries having to deliver things in specific time windows to specific locations all around Melbourne, it was just becoming too difficult. They knew they were delivering their goods inefficiently. Petrol was being wasted. Wages were being wasted. People were feeling as employees like their time was, was pointless sometimes when they were doing things not as efficiently as they could. So they came to us and said, you can, we can do it better, can't we? And we said, you sure can. 
So we built them a web-based tool that you put in the cloud and that they can access from an internet browser. It ingests their data automatically. They click a button, optimize, and out of that, they get the optimal sets of routes for all their drivers for that day within Melbourne. When an accident happens or traffic gets bad, they can hit re-optimize, look at the new best routes, send them out to their team, dispatch that information. And throughout the day, their drivers are doing the best possible things they can. So it's things like that where BI really shines. And since then, we as an organization have really made our names a name for ourselves in this mathematical modeling space. Back when the NBN was being rolled out, the NBN came to us and said, look, we've got tens of billions of dollars of work to do here. And if we do it poorly, we're going to be wasting taxpayers' money everywhere. And so uh, although we weren't responsible for the decisions that came later along, we were responsible for a lot of significant tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of savings in both good decision-making in terms of the way the fiber optic cable was laid out, as well as how efficiently and quickly it was done in comparison to what would have happened. And it was things like that that even led companies like Google, and that's the Google headquarters in San Francisco, to reach out to us and ask us to start solving their mathematical problems. So we've really come a long way working around the globe with this mathematical capability that, that is just is not as common as you think it would be. I got to visit Googleplex in San Francisco a few years ago and that was certainly, um, uh, it was, I don't even know what word to describe. Interesting doesn't do it justice. It was a fascinating experience. Have you been there to San Francisco? No, I haven't. I've, I've been around San Fran a fair bit. I've presented at conferences there and, and seen the area, but I've never actually bothered to go down to the Googleplex. As interesting as it is, I guess, it loses its charm a little bit when when they're the ones coming to you to, to ask for help sort of thing. It's always when it's that big thing, it's this magical search engine. You think, wow, how does it work and how do they do that? And then when you actually get to see, actually, you're just normal people like us, like the rest of us, then it kind of, it loses a little bit of its excitement, unfortunately. Yes, it was, I was still pretty excited. It was a <laughs> very innovative um, office. I can't imagine what it's like now. That was six or seven years ago. So it was, um, I imagine it's only only progressed since then. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about, I understand the work that Biari does with companies. Do you have, um, when you look at that journey from company to consumer do you have any consumer interfacing in the work that you do or is it all at a company level look it's mostly b2b most of what we do it's it's we're assisting other companies more than anything get better we tend not to have consumer face at least i can't think of anything off the top of my head right now no not nothing that i'm aware of at the moment although there could be some side project someone's done that i haven't been across that could have done something and we were talking a little bit earlier about, um, before we came on air, about some of the social impact work that you're doing. I'd re be really interested to explore that and how that fits with the work you're doing at BRE. Absolutely. So a big thing, the stuff we do, is we don't just serve the big end of town. So we've got these mathematical capabilities that companies like Google, Australia Post, Bunnings and other ones access and, and, and utilise. What we try and do as well at the same time, if we see a startup or a company that we think could have a significant impact and has a real chance to disrupt an industry in a positive way, and it really lacks that mathematical capability, because that's typically the thing that's not so easy to get a hold of. You can get a hold of web development, you can get a hold of design thinking, get a hold of a lot of things, 
but good quality mathematicians who understand a business problem and know how to frame a problem and, and take a design thinking approach to the mathematics even. So that, that interesting bridge there are uncommon. And so if we come across startups like that, we'll often assist them uh, and, and take an equity stake potentially within the organisation in lieu of some form of payment or whatever else it may be and, and really kickstart them on, on, their, on the analytical aspect of their journey on helping them make good decisions and provide amazing tools to, to, to the world. And one of those interesting examples that we worked on was a company called Sportcore. If you follow cricket, you probably would have heard of it. They're an organisation that began as Jetson Industries on the Gold Coast and what they decided to do was to put a chip in a cricket ball. So instead of just people arguing about how, how fast it was spinning and these other things that may not be possible to get from normal, uh, normal systems that exist currently, cameras and other things, what they wanted to do was put it inside the cricket ball and then measure the cricket ball from the inside out. And the potential applications go far beyond sport here. This was kind of the proof of concept to show that this can be done in a situation where the thing can take a high impact. And that's what a lot of us are, something that can take a high impact, remain stable, provide data, and still provide useful information. And so we assisted them with developing machine learning algorithms to help them understand the speed and the spin of the ball from the data that was coming off the chip. And that was kind of a partnership that we took with that startup. And we've done that with at least half a dozen other startups around the globe to seed them with the key piece of technology that they need to be able to serve their target market. And so when you talk about artificial intelligence, because I think there's a lot of different, um, not so much definitions, but maybe understanding of what AI is. And you've got, you know, um, documentaries like The Social Dilemma that are talking about these big algorithms that are running our lives and all of the, the negative side of that. And I know a lot of people who are making some choices based on part of the story that they're hearing. Um, can you simplify it for people? Artificial intelligence, what is it and what kind of role is it playing in our life at the moment? Well, I think the way most people think of artificial intelligence, it's basically just mimicking that pattern detection that humans can do. And how do you do it? How do humans do that? Well, humans experience something multiple times over. They experience something many, many times. And then after a while, they learn the general pattern that if something's burning hot and I touch it, I'll burn myself. And so I guess that's kind of what artificial intelligence is doing. And you see that with things like detecting cats and images, just show something enough images of cats. And after a while, it'll figure out what a cat is. And if you show it an image, it'll be able to correctly identify, yes, there's a cat in the image and here it is. And so that's kind of at its core, what I, I think a lot of people can relate in a very simple form, what artificial intelligence is. It's trying to take your intuition, the things that you learn and teach a computer those things around what is it? That, that, that is this thing that I'm seeing? What is it that this thing that I'm grabbing? What does this sentence mean? Can I write a sentence myself as a computer in the same way that humans learn grammar and stuff like that? And so that's really a large part of it is just to take those learnings that we get and, and let a computer learn those things with different sorts of systems. And so what it really needs is nowadays, at least, when people think of AI, it needs lots of computing power. It needs lots of data. And it needs a few smart algorithms thrown in the mix. And the beauty about what's available now is even small businesses or, um, you know, startups, not-for-profits, they can all benefit from this technology that's available because of, 
you know, the various softwares and platforms that are, are making those readily available. Um, one of the fears I think that a lot of people have is, and this is probably a big conversation, we'll go down a wormhole, <laughs> but, um, you know, the fear of at what point can these machines out, can the artificial intelligence outstrip human intelligence or overtake human intelligence? Can you talk to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, in lots of industries, it's happened a long, long time ago and for good reasons. So uh, an industry that people discuss a lot about is, is, the, is the industry of car making and in particular the infiltration of robots in there and talking about the use of robotics to improve actually dangerous and repetitive and, and error-prone tasks. And one of the early tasks that people recognised was horrifically boring, had a level of danger not for the person doing it but for the end consumer and could be automated was welding. So welding sitting down with someone with a mask and slowly welding two bits of steel together was a slow, repetitive task where mistakes could be made. And the problem with that is a mistake could be made is not just ugly. It could mean that in a certain situation where you're turning a corner, some part of two pieces of welded metal could break and you could suddenly crash your car. And one of the things that we see, for example, in autos, in, in cars nowadays, is that back in the day, a three-year warranty was amazing. But because of this automation and the use of robotics in things like welding and many other aspects, painting and a whole variety of aspects of the car uh, manufacturing, we can now get seven to 10 year warranties. So there's a significant benefit for consumers, massive. And AI has gone, has left humans years ago, 20 years ago, it was beyond it, the algorithms that ran these things. And so I think in each industry, we see a slow creep forwards with AI for things that humans find repetitive with things where humans can typically make errors and there's spaces where we do want to see AI. We do want to see AI take over some of these basic mundane tasks, which if we do them better, have a profoundly good effect on society, profoundly good effect. And that can be in health, that can be in, in telecommunications, that's in a wide variety of industries. In terms of AI outdoing us in other areas that, that could be concerning, I think a lot of the, the concern really lies, I think, in people being uh, not necessarily having a pathway to get out of their situation. So let's say you've done something your whole life and your job becomes displaced and you don't have a pathway to move to something else. And that, that's obviously a concerning situation. And so like you said, it, it, is a, it is a large wormhole here in that it will happen to a certain degree, but it requires a clear vision from our leaders within Australia and other countries to recognise that and help society move towards where things are going, just like we did in previous industrial revolutions, just like we did when the steam engine replaced manual labour, just like we did when the Jacquard loom replaced a lot of manual sewing. And these things will keep happening. And I think we just need to look back in history to say, okay, we don't need to sit and wait for it to happen. We can be proactive and address those changes. And there's a number of organisations that are doing that and saying, look, in a number of industries, this will affect you. So let's get prepared and let's be part of the beneficiaries of those systems instead of just being the purchasers of those systems. And it's certainly an interesting time walking that dilemma of um, control and governance, I guess, without stifling the innovation that's possible there. 
Um, I, I saw, and I will admit it was brief, I didn't read the whole article, but commentary about um, political leaders recently saying, you know, we don't want to focus on innovation at the moment, we want to focus on adoption. Um, and I thought that was an interesting strategy because innovation is key right now. You know, we both work in innovation in different ways. Um, but how do you see AI playing a role in innovation? I think that it can play a lot of roles in the sense of things that may not have been possible or done poorly in the past. What technology can do is it can play the role of the enabler and the accelerator. So technology will not make a bad business model good. Technology will not make a bad business idea good. It won't help at all. And in fact, if you look at some of the most successful companies globally, there was a good business model and technology was simply an enabler. And so what AI will be able to do is to enable problems and pain points, the kind of jobs to be done framework that Clayton Christensen talks about and enable them to be done in a way where the creation of value by doing it with AI is enough that we're able to actually charge for that and that both parties can split the value, both the, the company or the consumer at the end of it is willing to pay a low enough price so that it's worthwhile for us to develop an AI system to do that. And I think AI could play a significant role in innovation from that perspective. I recently gave a talk at Something Digital talking about AI and creativity, where we looked at can AI be creative and can it assist in this innovation process either completely autonomously or augmenting human capabilities? And the clear answer is there is that in the last five years, there's been a true revolution and the capability and what we're production creating new songs through to simply augmenting human capability to solve problems and providing us with a different data-driven perspective on an issue to create better solutions. So AI, I think, will play a central role. It'll be something like design thinking and the many other tools that we have access to nowadays. It'll be another tool in a toolkit that people who are quite successful at it will learn how to adapt and use it and it will be a competitive advantage they will have over other people who aren't able to do so. Yeah, I think there's so many ways this conversation could go at this point. I'm going to ask you, um, how do you use technology and social media to connect in with your tribe? Because I imagine that there's, a, you know, there's a lot of people in the world working in this space. So how do you use technology and social media to connect? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And the answer for me is quite clear in the sense of it's about giving, which may sound unusual, but it's really about giving. And in connecting with the tribe, I have a specific set of capabilities. And recently I, I did that with a new AI-powered Excel sheet that I created to help companies forecast better. So instead of them struggling to, to figure out how to do it, we packaged it up in an Excel sheet. I wrote a little thing there that you input the data for three years of your sales information it'll then output the forecast for you of what the coming year will look like on a quarter by quarter basis. So it will tell you quarter by quarter what it could look like. It's not just a straight line through the year, but actually on a quarter by quarter using some really simple AI techniques, but it's, it's something that we can do. And so it's things like that, giving that back to the community and providing them with value, I think builds that level of reciprocity in the sense of if, if you're going to, uh, provide them with something, then I think they'll provide you with something back, which could be the attention or could be the, the sharing or pointing out that, hey, these people have something of value to share with us. 
And I think there's no doubt that social media and some of the technology that's available to connect people now has fast-tracked innovation in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise because people can now obviously connect from all around the world around really interesting projects um, and freely share, share knowledge. Are you involved in a lot of those global networks? Absolutely. I used to be on the board of the International Association of Innovation Professionals, which is an organisation out of America. So I spent a year or two on that one there. Uh, I've, I've also a part of an associate editor of a different innovation journal as well. And a large part of me publishing my book was leveraging a global network of innovators to promote that and, and really recognise that it felt important and needed gap in the market. And I guess in terms of what we also do, I still connect with, with previous people back in Sweden where I used to live and the organisation I used to work with there still connected with them and there's always a specific set of skills and problems that you face in life where if you have this network of people you can always reach out and go hey I'm facing this challenge has anyone seen anything similar what do you think and and being able to get an answer to that is 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 key and and the reason why it's worth while keeping connected in such a framework is that diversity of thought that real diversity of opinions that diversity of approaches that I think has also become key in the last decade, the diversity and inclusion movement that we're seeing go on right now. And, and really in the creative industries where I work, it, there's no more important capability than having a diverse set of opinions, a diverse group of individuals who look at a problem differently and are able to solve it in different ways. No, I don't want a set of straight seven PhDs around me who've done game theory as well. That would be useless because we'd all probably think in the same way. What I do want is someone with an arts degree who maybe have got a GPA of four and some, but they've gone and climbed the, the biggest mountain in, in South Africa or something, or they've gone and had experiences around the world that other people haven't had. And someone who's a drama major and someone who does biochemistry. And, and this is a group of people that'll be able to solve true challenges because of their diversity of thought and their unique ways of looking at problems. We just have to learn to work together. And that's, and that's kind of, I think, a key part of that global network, being able to work together with many people with diverse backgrounds to solve challenging problems. Does AI, this question just popped into my head, but does AI um, enhance physical relationships? And I don't mean physical as in in-person, but human connections and relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. I lived in Europe for 10 years. And when I went to Germany to do my PhD, I bought a one-way ticket from Brisbane. I actually didn't have a return ticket. And so when I got there, the way I'd communicate with my family is you'd open up the newspaper every Sunday and you'd desperately scour down to the last page in the back corner of the newspaper and find the cheap dial codes. And you'd get five cents a minute dialed to Australia instead of $2 a minute. And one time I did that, I got the code wrong and ended up spending over 150 euros to ring Australia, which was just insane. But it, the whole system just felt crazy and you'd have to take up someone's phone line. Within five years of me being there, Skype had, had taken over and it was already there in the background, but it pretty much taken over so we could now ring each other however and whenever we wanted to. We had systems like that that made the communication and connection possible and easy and simple and effectively free so that people such as myself could now connect with their family and get that emotional and psychological support that would be necessary, especially when I was there in the early days by myself. And so we're really seeing, I would say, these technologies making that possible. We're seeing a new revolution, a true revolution in digital currencies. And I'm not 
necessarily pushing Bitcoin here, but the ability to move money around so freely now also to support people and that connection then existing between individuals in that form. And one of the other big things, I think there's a big connection going on in terms of simple things, even like eBay. If you've ever sold products on eBay, what you're looking for uh, more than anything is, is to provide a good product and be successful long-term. And a large part of that's your rating that you have there. And so I think, I know this is not necessarily AI at its core, but there are a lot of algorithms that sit underneath that that drive those rating creation. Like how do we figure out what that rating is to, to favorably show someone? How do I show up a good seller on a platform? We know Amazon's recommendations and things like that. And that all plays into that, that AI facilitating a better connection between people. We can now trust people around the globe to deliver us something that we've purchased. We can trust an Uber driver that we've never met before to deliver us well, and they usually do. And so I think AI has been a core part of that. And it's really, I think it's really opened up massive and new opportunities. Now, if they would just bring in ratings and reviews on internet dating, I'd be really, really happy. <laughs> Still can't believe no one's done that yet. <laughs> so as we start to wrap up, I'm not even going to go down that wormhole. As we start to wrap up, um, Evan, what's one thing that you'd like people to do differently when it comes to artificial intelligence or understanding or adoption of? Look, the one, the one thing I'd like people to do differently in the artificial intelligence space really is to have the right expectations of what it can and can't do. I think AI gets a lot of attention. There's a lot of hyperbole around it. There's a lot of people thinking it can do things it can't do. And so I think what I'd love to see is people have the right expectations around if you want to build a big system, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of data and a lot of effort. It is not just a simple plug and play. In particular, a large part of AI is about customizing it for you, using your data. And if your data is rubbish, then it's going to be a long time before you're going to have a good system. And so the one thing I'd love to see is, is people having realistic expectations around the effort involved in, in creating these systems. Don't get me wrong, the advantage can be massive but knowing truly what's involved before doing it so that they can have a successful experience from day one and dedicate themselves to it in the right way and have a truly big impact and not walk away and go, oh, this AI hocus pocus mumbo jumbo, it doesn't do anything, it's all just snake oil. But knowing from day one what's involved there, I think that, that would be amazing. And there, I think we would see a lot more people benefiting from it because they'd be picking the right level of tool for their right uh, situation. And what's the entry point for people? At what point, you know, does a business go, AI is a potential solution for a problem that we have? I'm just, as you're talking, wondering how people can identify that for themselves or their business. That's a very good question. And it's different for different size businesses. So small businesses, what I'd recommend from an AI perspective is you take something off the shelf. Uh, you can't necessarily afford a complex, highly configured system. It's just too expensive. And so there exist a lot of systems off the shelf that can do things, whether they're simplified chatbots or whether that's, again, my sales forecasting tool that I use. There's nothing more important, actually, for a business than sales, knowing what revenue and your cash flow is going to be. Grabbing a few things that, like that off the shelf and then adapting it yourself. As you get to the medium and larger size business, the next step really is to have more customized tools that usually you'll configure and build, maybe not completely from scratch, but you'll build from, from a lower level to get greater benefits. And then at the enterprise level, it's really about having that highly customized set of algorithms that's unique for your business and gives you the biggest benefit. And so 
that's where I'd say, depending on where you are and who you work for, they're the different levels that I would approach AI with. And just finally, where is all this going? What can we expect to see in the next few years when it comes to probably more that smaller end um, of business? What's coming? Have you got the crystal ball on Look, AI? No, I don't. It's complex. It's not an easy one because of human beings. Technology, we can all get lost in the tech and think it's wonderful. But human beings now, when you look at the surveys, they're becoming more distrustful of AI and new software systems. They've got more software systems they can handle. They don't feel like they can keep up with the changes that are going on in this space every day. They don't know anymore what is relevant for them and what's not, what can help them or not. And so I think we're going to find a period going forward that really could be quite interesting that I'm unsure what will happen because there's more and more technologists and people that love tech just keep building tools and keep building more and more stuff. And and the MarTech space is a great example of this where 10 years ago, there was maybe 100 MarTech tools. And now 10 years later, there's well over, I think it was uh, 2,000 now, or it could be 10,000. I'm not sure. It's just, it's exploding that people are just throwing their hands up and giving up. And so it's very difficult to say because we're human beings, it's not just about technology. I'm not sure which way this will go. It's certainly one of the industries or the places I think well worth uh, repositioning for those who are looking for a place to reposition, you know, the industry of guides, mentors and coaches who are helping businesses navigate this space. It's I'm certainly coming across a lot more people in that space. So I think it's something that's definitely growing alongside the, the industry as well. And people need that, the support to kind of navigate the, the landscape and figure out what's best for them. Thank you so much, Evan, for joining me today. Can you let us know where's the best place for people to connect with you if they'd like to find out more about Biari or about your amazing Excel spreadsheet that I'm sure everyone's keen to get their hands on? Uh, the best place is probably on LinkedIn. You'll find me easily on LinkedIn. I'll, I'm usually pretty responsive there. So connect with me on LinkedIn, shoot me a message, and I'll point you to further resources as needed. Great. And we'll include Evan's links in the show notes. So thank you again, Evan, for joining me today. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Kate. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Social Lights podcast produced by Social Mediology. You can connect with us on Facebook at Social Lights Podcast, and you can find today's show notes and more episodes at socialmediology.com.au forward slash social lights. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast platform to receive future episodes and share with your tribe to inspire others to action.